The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity this eve, this morning to come together to worship you, to study your word, to fellowship around the teaching of your word, that we might have the human viewpoint in our souls challenged and, and instructed by the divine viewpoint of your word. Father, we pray that as we study your word that we might be willing and able to apply the things that we study, that we might have the courage to take the absolute truth of your word and to uh, take it into our thinking, to use it to uh, get rid of the human viewpoint concepts that are there. We pray that we might be able to have a greater concept of uh, discernment, greater ability to exercise discernment and to think critically about the things that surround us in our culture that we may be able to apply your word to every aspect of our thought, taking every thought captive for Christ. Father, we Pray that you'd guide and direct us, our thinking this morning. As we study your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, and we are on the edge of finishing this epistle. Last time we looked at 5, 18, and 19. And before we get into the last two verses, I want to go back and take just some time this morning to focus on the final phrase of verse 19, and that is that the whole world lies uh, under the wicked one. The wicked one is a title, one of various titles in the scripture for Satan. Satan is the title that is given to the highest of all of the angels that God created in eternity past. It was his, he is also called Lucifer, 
although that is a name that is taken from the Latin translation of uh, Isaiah chapter 14, and it actually means the sun of the morning bright and uh, morning star, and is not a technical name as such, but is more of a description of his character as he was prior to his fall. But it is that particular creature, the highest, the smartest, the most powerful, the most beautiful and brilliant of all of God's creations, that decided that he wanted to be like God. And it is in his the action of his sin that we get our first glimpse and understanding of what is meant by the world system that is referenced here in verse 19, that the whole world, that is the whole cosmos in the Greek, the cosmos lies under the power or under the authority of the wicked one, that it is Satan who is the author and originator of cosmic thinking, and all cosmic thinking, no matter how it might display itself, in various instances throughout human history, all participates in certain uh, commonalities that were exemplified by Satan's thinking at the time of his fall. So I wanted to take some time to go back and look at this concept of the cosmos. Now let's get our, our context. Context of these last three verses. Actually, this section begins in verse 18 where we have the phrase, we know. We have three we knows in verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20. Verse 19 reads, we know that we are under God. We are of God. That refers to not simply believers, but believers who are abiding in Christ. We have studied that extensively, and we have seen the contrast in 1 John uh, chapter 3, 8 through 10, where those who are of God are contrasted with those who are of the devil, and in both both contexts it's talking about believers. So of God has to do with those believers who are abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, and applying doctrine. We know that we are of God, but in contrast, the whole world lies under the wicked one. So it's a reminder that cosmic thinking is has its origin in Satan, in the fall of Satan. And so therefore we want to take some time to look at this particular doctrine in um, in First John and how it applies to us. Now I want to begin. Now let's go on and pick up the context. First John five twenty. Before I get ahead of myself, First John five twenty. John says, and we know that that the Son of God has come. See, so he's going to contrast the cosmic thinking at the end of verse nineteen with the truth in verse twenty. Notice, true is used three times in this verse. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So there is a direct connection here between idolatry, cosmic thinking, in contrast to being of God and operating on the truth. So we have to understand that a little more. And this has been a major theme in this epistle, starting in 1 John 2.15. In 1 John um, 2.15 we read, 
Do not love the world, that is the cosmic system, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, that is love for the Father, is not in him. This is addressed to believers and clearly indicates that believers can love the world and can love the details of life in the cosmic system and can have their thinking completely characterized by the cosmic system. And that is in contrast to having a love for the Father. Love for the Father is characterized by thinking uh, God's thoughts after Him. Love for the Father is indicated by keeping His commandments. To keep His commandments, you have to know His commandments. To know His commandments, you have to study His commandments. So that is the contrast between cosmic thinking and divine viewpoint thinking. Verse 16, 1 John 2.16 states, For all that is in the world, that is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, or not of the Father, but is from the world. It has its source in cosmic thinking. And the world, that is cosmic thinking, is passing away. It's temporary, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So there is a contrast between Cosmic thinking and divine viewpoint thinking. Cosmic thinking is antithetical to personal love for God the Father. It's antithetical to abiding in Christ. It is an antagonism to everything that is in the spiritual life. In 1 John 3.1, John says, See how great a love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. That is, the cosmic system is in complete antagonism to God and is ignorant of God. As we shall see, they reconstruct the image of God. 1 John 3.13, Do not marvel, brethren, if the cosmic system hates you. There is antagonism in that verse, from the cosmic system to the believer. 1 John 4.3, And every spirit that does not confess or admit Jesus is not from God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. So part of the, the world system is a rejection of, of Jesus Christ and who He is, and is a rejection of a biblical understanding of who God is. Now, that's important because we hear people talk about God all the time. There's a lot of emphasis on sort of a civic uh, Christianity, a civic religion today in, in, uh, in America. But if it doesn't have the God of the Bible, if it doesn't start from a position of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then it is a false God, and a false God is an idol. That's how these things are going to connect. Cosmic thinking has idolatry at its very core. So that's how uh, we're going to see John bringing all of these things together. And then 1 John 4, 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the cosmic system uh, listens to them. But in contrast to that, we're given the promise in 1 John 5, 4, and 5, that whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our doctrine. So through doctrine, we can overcome cosmic thinking, and this is grounded in a, a correct understanding of who Jesus Christ is in terms of his deity, his undiminished deity and true humanity. 1 John 5, 5, and who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So it is not just salvation, but as we saw when we studied 1 John 5, 5, it is the believer who continues to trust and rely upon 
uh, a Jesus as defined in Scripture who is undiminished deity and true humanity uh, joined together in one person in contrast to the false teachers, the uh, proto-Gnostics of John's day who were denying uh, some aspect of the hypostatic union. So with that in a brief review of the significance of cosmic thinking to what John has said so far in this epistle. When he comes to this conclusion, he's sort of tying this up, wrapping it up for us, and I want to take that and I want to develop it a little bit this morning and then tie it into an important application. So we're going to go through several key points on the cosmic system. Now, this is not an exhaustive study of the cosmic system, but these points all relate to uh, one dimension of the cosmic system. So we'll just start off with a general definition of the cosmic system. Point number one. The cosmic system refers to Satan's orderly, cohesive, and multifaceted system of thinking, which includes a purpose, policy, and structure of authority designed to subvert the human race and gain control over the world he now rules. Let's go back and take that apart just a little bit. First of all, we get the term cosmic from the Greek word cosmos, and cosmos refers to that which is orderly and structured. So when we talk about worldliness, we're not talking about particular behavior patterns as much as we're talking about a certain structured way of thinking. And so the Bible presents the fact that there are different ways of thinking about reality. There is God's way of thinking about reality, and there is the creature's way of thinking about reality that aligns itself with Satan. So we start off with the first part of the definition that this is Satan's orderly, cohesive, and multifaceted system of thinking. By orderly, we see the fact that there is logic to it. It is internally consistent if you grant the assumptions of Satan, and that is that the creature has the right to define reality. Whenever you are in a debate, if you grant the assumptions of your opponent, if your opponent is logically consistent with his assumptions, you've lost the debate. Let me say that again. That went by some of you. If you're in a debate and you grant the assumptions of your opponent as true, if your opponent's argument is logically consistent with his assumptions, you've already lost the debate. Because if if his assumptions are true and you allow him to get away with them, then everything he says based on that, if he's logically consistent, then, then his argument can't be refuted. And where most Christians lose debates and lose any kind of discussion with somebody is we never attack the assumptions or presuppositions of the person who's operating on human viewpoint. We're dealing with the details of their argument and not their core presupposition, which, as we'll see, often is based on the idea that man the creature has the right to define and determine and the nature of reality that man is the ultimate determiner of right and wrong and is the ultimate standard. So there is order to Satan's uh, system. It is cohesive. That means it is internally consistent. It's multifaceted, meaning there's a lot of different dimensions to it. We're going to, I'm going to point out the, the basic, basic elements that are in every type of religion or philosophy 
but there's all kinds of different different uh, systems. There there may be religious systems such as Islam or Mormonism, uh, various uh, ritual systems of religion, ancient uh, uh, fertility worship. All of those were different manifestations of the same system. Or they may be philosophical systems such as idealism, Platonism, uh, existentialism, nihilism. All of these are just different human viewpoint uh, philosophical positions, but they. Every one of them, whether you're talking about a religious system on the one hand or you're talking about a philosophical system on the other, they all say something about ultimate reality and what ultimate reality is like. And ultimate reality is, for the believer, is God. And so when you're, whether you're talking about uh, a, a Kantian philosophy, whether you're talking about a, a Cartesian rationalism, whether you're talking about uh, John Locke, whether you're discussing just a religious system like Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism, they all say something about the nature of ultimate reality. And that ultimate reality is God. So at that, at that level, they're all making religious statements, even though it may not be what is classified normally as a religion. If you look at existentialism, it says something about the ultimate nature of reality, and that is a religious statement. If you look at secular humanism, it says something about the ultimate nature of reality, and that is a religious statement. So ultimately, every system of thought has at its core a a view of ultimate reality. Now, ultimate reality goes beyond physical appearances, doesn't it? It goes beyond that which is normally seen and that which is heard or measured by the senses. It goes beyond physical laws. And the Greeks are, are in English we've coined a word based on Greek Greek terms to talk about that which goes beyond the physical. And it's based on a Greek preposition called meta, which means beyond or above or over, and the word physic for nature. And so that which goes beyond nature, beyond the physical reality, is metaphysics. And that's what that term means. Metaphysical has to do with the ultimate, the study of ultimate realities. And we have today a rise in metaphysical religions in the whole New Age movement. And usually what is meant in a common use of that term, like metaphysical religion today, uh, as opposed to the classic study of metaphysics and philosophy, is the the uh, study usually some form of New Age mysticism or transcendentalism or uh, even uh, uh, seances and necromancy are all part of uh, some some kind of metaphysic metaphysical religious system. So all of these different types of thinking are all are simply different manifestations of Satan's original kind of. Uh, Satan's original thinking at the time of, of his fall. All of these systems have a purpose, policy, and structure. Their purpose is all designed to subvert God's authority. They contain various policies and structures of authority designed to subvert the human race and gain control over the world, over the society of man, uh, which Satan now rules. He's called the, the, uh, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. So this is a basic definition of the cosmic system. Point number two. The cosmic system, then, is a reflection of the thinking that characterized the fall of Satan. 
The cosmic system is a reflection of the thinking that characterized the fall of Satan. And we can summarize that with two words. Two words summarize the fall of Satan, and we can classify everything under one of these two words. And the first word is autonomy. The second word is antagonism. Autonomy comes from two Greek words, autos meaning self, and namas meaning law, self-law. And this emphasizes the fact that man, or the creature, considers himself to be the ultimate determiner of law or reality. So that the creature then has the right to determine reality. As reality, the creature defines values, what's right, what's wrong, what should be worshipped, what should not be worshipped. The creature has the right to determine uh, ethics, norms and standards, uh, right and wrong. All of this is determined by, by the creature. Now, under the category of antagonism, we're talking about hostility to divine viewpoint. And so at every point, Satan is hostile or antagonistic to divine viewpoint. Even while at the surface, it may present a system of religion that seems compatible with Christianity. That's why you have what they call certain Christian cults. And Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses are both classified as Christian cults because they borrow certain terminology and methodology. They talk about Jesus Christ, even though it's a distorted view of Jesus Christ. And in both those systems, they break down and destroy the hypostatic union, uh, just as the ancient Gnostics did. So there is, even though there may be on the surface a compatibility, something that is compatible with Christianity, there is also a uh, complete breakdown uh, once you get inside the system. So point number two simply recognizes that the cosmic system recognizes the, the, the basic thinking that characterized the fall of Satan in terms of autonomy and antagonism. In autonomy, Satan is saying that he, the creature, has the right to be like God. He has the right to be God. He has the right to determine what is right and wrong. And, of course, in antagonism, he is hostile to everything that God is attempting to do. So point number three simply explains the concept of autonomy and antagonism. Autonomy is the self-oriented feature of the cosmic system, which elevates the creature to the position of final authority for determining reality and truth. The creature determines what's right or wrong. The creature generates certain standards by which he judges everything else. The creature generates certain standards by which he's going to decide whether or not God is fair or right or just. And you'll run into unbelievers who'll say, well, how can a good, and you say you believe in a good and perfect God, well, how can a good and perfect God allow the Holocaust? How can a good and perfect God uh, allow for the destruction from uh, a nuclear bomb? If God is, is good, then why would he allow all of this, this suffering and all of this evil to take place? 
And what's happened is that as a creature, they're defining an autonomous concept of what good is, and then they want to come along and say, well, God has to answer my standard of what is good, or he's not God. So autonomy is the self-oriented feature of the cosmic system which elevates the creature to the position of final authority for determining reality and truth. Antagonism is the God-oriented feature. So autonomy is the self-oriented feature, emphasizing self as the final authority. Antagonism is the God-oriented or God-directed feature, which expresses the creature's rejection of and hostility toward the plan of God, the word of God, and the people of God. It is the creature's rejection of and hostility toward the plan of God, the word of God, and the people of God. He who, as James says in James 4, he who would be a friend of the world is at enmity with God. You can't be a little bit worldly, and I mean that in terms of thinking according to human viewpoint, and a little bit in divine viewpoint. It's either or. There's no compatibility between the two systems. Now that leads me to the next major point in terms of this introduction, and that is that the root characteristic, therefore, of cosmic thinking is a rejection of the creator-creature distinction. It is a rejection of the creator-creature distinction. Now this is a foundational doctrine that I need to develop a little bit, that there is a distinction between God as the creator and man as the creature. And every single cosmic system, every single uh, pagan way of thought, whether it's a philosophical framework or whether it is a religious framework, it all breaks down eventually uh, in, in terms of a violation of the creator-creature distinction, which is unique to Christianity, unique to Let's, let me say it's unique to a biblical perspective. It is in contrast to every other form of thinking. So we have to understand this creator-creature distinction. Point number five in developing the creator-creature idea. The most important and distinguishing characteristic of the God of the Bible that is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I think in light of the current debate over uh, with Islam, we need to make sure we understand that the God of the Bible is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not the God of Ishmael, and therefore the God that uh, the, the Muslims worship is not the God of the Bible. And we've demonstrated that before, and I'm not going to go off onto that tangent, but the God we worship and the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he is the creator. For example, and this is the primary characteristic of God, is that he is the creator. This is fundamental to the entire Bible. That is why this debate over creation versus evolution is so important. Now, in the past, when we've gotten into cosmic thinking, I have taken the time to talk about different manifestations of cosmic thinking. We looked at uh, psychology back in our study in Judges as one manifestation of cosmic, cosmic thinking. 
We've looked at various other dimensions of, uh, of cosmic thinking as they have been, are, are displayed in our world today. We've looked at religion. We've looked at other things. Uh, eventually, I'm going to do a study on creation and evolution, and I'm seriously considering beginning a study of Genesis on Wednesday night after I finish the current salvation series, and we'll spend a lot of time looking at the first three chapters of Genesis and how they relate, so that will give us an opportunity to uh, develop important concepts in that area. But we have to recognize that this is why this is such an important battlefield, is because origins affect everything, every metaphysical system. Every religious system, every philosophical system has some view of ultimate origins. And it is that view of origins that in turn affects everything. It, it affects their, their view of knowledge. It affects their view of the makeup of man, whether man is good or whether man is evil. It affects values. It affects norms and standards. It affects everything. It affects law. It affects politics. It affects economics. It affects your view of history. It affects your view of education. It affects your view of every single issue in life goes back to origins, and if you try to compromise what the Bible says with any human viewpoint system of origins, you are undercutting everything else in the Bible. In fact, we we see this, uh, the importance of this doctrine is illustrated in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Now, the context of Revelation 4.11 is the throne room of God. This takes place in the future. This is at the time of the beginning of the tribulation. It, it involves all those who are around the throne of God, the 24 elders, the beasts, the angels. And what are they, what are they saying? What are they singing to God? Worth, Revelation 4.11. Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power... Why? Because you saved us? No. Because you redeemed mankind? No. The emphasis here isn't on the fact that he is the redeemer, but first and foremost, it is because you created all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. It is not until you get into Revelation chapter 5 that the redeemer, Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, comes forward. So what what has important in terms of precedence and in terms of significance is God in his role as creator. Uh, Biblically, uh, redemption and God's plan of salvation is built on the foundation of his role as creator. Redemption is meaningless if it is cut loose from the doctrine of God as the creator of everything. Let me say that again. Redemption, the whole plan of salvation is meaningless if you cut it loose from the doctrine of creation. Let me illustrate that. Again and again, when Paul, when we have a, an explanation or we have, uh, or we're given the content of Paul's evangelistic message to the Gentiles in Acts, he begins his witness to a Gentile audience, to a Gentile pagan audience. He begins his witness not at the tomb. He doesn't start off saying, well, Jesus rose from the dead and the tomb is empty, which is typical evangelistic technique today. We're going to prove Jesus is God, so the tomb is empty. He doesn't start at the cross. He doesn't start with sin. He doesn't say, you're a sinner, 
and you need to be saved. Where does Paul always start? He always starts with creation. That's why it's so important. Because if you don't have the God you're being saved by as the creator God, then the God you're being saved by is just any other God. And you haven't distinguished him. We see this in Acts 14.15 where Paul says, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Before he even gets to the gospel, he is challenging their very concept of ultimate reality that it's not this God who is part of the universe, but it is a God who is completely distinguished and separate from the universe. He is the creator of everything else. Acts 17.24, when he's on Mars Hill in Athens, he says the God, he starts by focusing their attention on this, this unnamed, unknown God, that this is the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, and does not dwell in temples made without hands. He starts with God as creator. The beginning of Romans, his great treatise on Christian doctrine, he starts with God as creator in Romans 1, uh, 19 and 20, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And then I had a typo, so I didn't get the right verse in here for verse 20, but let me read it to you. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen. So he says, how does he? they know it? Because of the creation of the world. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, God is distinguished. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, is distinguished from all other gods and all other metaphysical concepts by the fact that The God of the Bible is the creator of everything and is distinct from everything. This is why the early church creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, all of the early church creeds begin with a statement to the effect that we believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, before they ever get to the point where they're talking about Jesus or the resurrection or salvation or the Holy Spirit, the very first statement is that we believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. Creation is important because what it does is set man apart as a finite creature who is not the one who defines reality. As soon as you distinguish God as the creator of everything, you immediately recognize that man is not the determiner of reality. Man does not define reality. God is the one who creates and defines reality. Things are what they are because God made them that way and God determined that things would be that way. Therefore, reality is defined by God's thinking and not by human opinion human conjecture or philosophical speculation. Now that's all under point five, that the most important and distinguishing characteristic of the God of the Bible is that he is the creator and distinguished from creation. And point number six, which is also fairly extensive, I want to summarize a few points about the Bible's presentation of God as the creator. What does the Bible say about God as the creator? Well, first of all, it says that God creates ex nihilo. 
This is a Latin phrase that means from nothing. Ex nihilo. From nothing. That is, that if you go back and back, back in time, that at some point before the universe existed, before the angels existed, there was nothing except God. Now I want you to think about that. I want you to get inside your, your thinking a little bit. And I want you to push your thought back. Before there was an earth, before there were any stars, before there was a space-time continuum, before the angels existed, God existed and nothing else existed. No physical laws. The laws of physics don't, don't exist. There's, there's no matter. There's no energy. There is no universe. There's nothing there. And God simply speaks, and out of absolute nothingness, everything comes. The universe is created. He generates space and time out of nothing. He generates energy and matter out of nothing. It is simply by His His Word. So, the Bible teaches that God creates ex nihilo, and what that does... Let's start charting this a little bit. I'm going to draw a circle here. And this circle is the universe. And in the universe, you have all your creatures. You have all your physical laws. You have the entire uh, space-time continuum. This is all inside the circle. Outside the circle is God. God then, according to the scripture, is completely distinct from all creation. Now let's contrast that with human viewpoint. In human viewpoint, all your pagan deities... All your pagan deities are part of the circle. Let's see, I keep running out of ink and all of these pens keep drying up. Brought a bunch of new ones down the other day and they're all drying up. Okay. Let me see if this, there, this is a little better. Okay. In all of your human viewpoint systems, in all of your pagan systems, God is part, he is inside the circle. For example, if you go back and you read, like, um, for example, Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation epic, or you read about the, the various, uh, gods of the Greek, Greek and Roman pantheons, and when there's the, the original creation, what you have when the earth is created or the universe is created, the gods are in existence. And usually you have several different forms that take place, but creation is always a, some explained in terms of a natural process. So that the gods, little g, 
are all part of the process. There's no ex nihilo creation. What you have is these gods either create the universe in the sense it's described in sense of procreation, in which one of the gods gives birth to the universe, which means it comes out of them. It's not created ex nihilo. It's created from something that's already there. Or the gods, some god is slain, and his body is cut up and spread out, and his body becomes the universe. So the universe then is equal to these gods or goddesses. And that's where you get the idea of pantheism, that the universe equals gods, and that's usually consistent with that. But the gods are inside the circle, and they and, and you go back to that point of creation, and there's something that already exists. You see the same thing in evolution. You go back to the Big Bang Theory, and you go back, you push it back, you push it back, you go, what, what existed three seconds after the universe came into existence after the Big Bang? Well, you have this, this, this core that's beginning to explode and beginning to spread out. Okay, what existed six seconds earlier? Something existed. There was something there. In other words, there's no point where there is nothing. So there's a complete contrast between the biblical view of God as distinct from all matter and all creation and the universe and all pagan systems, whether they're ancient mythological systems or whether they're modern pseudoscientific explanations such as Darwinism, the Big Bang, or anything of that nature, is that you have you never have a time when there is nothing. In fact, what you have in... in at, at the point of the Big Bang is you already have the existence of matter and energy. But what we've got in the Bible is there's no matter and there's no energy. There is, there is nothing. Now let's look at the difference in that. The difference is that according to the Bible, on the divine viewpoint side, the ultimate reality is distinct from the universe, and the ultimate reality is defined as a person a person with whom we can have a personal relationship, a person with whom we can communicate, a person who thinks, a person who interacts with man, a person who has a sense of art and music and beauty. But in paganism, the gods are all part of the material universe. So ultimately, there is no relationship. You're pushed back to something that is ultimately uh, simply material in one sense or another. So in paganism, because the, and, and furthermore in paganism, uh, what cre- usually what creates this is some sort of chaos, especially it's most clearly seen in those, those uh, cosmogenies. Now there's a good word for you. Cosmogony. A cosmogony is a, a view of the origin of the cosmos. And so every philosophical system, every religious system has some sort of cosmogony, some sort of, of a tale that explains the origin of everything. And ultimately what they have is in there is some sort of chaos. For example, in, in Enuma Elish, in the Babylonian account as well as in the, your, your Greek and Roman accounts, there's some sort of battle among the gods. 
The only reason the earth is created is because one particular God gained victory over another God. Zeus gains victory over uh, Uranus, or uh, uh, Baal gains victory over uh, one of the other gods in the Babylonian pantheon, or Marduk gains victory over uh, one of the other gods. But what's to guarantee that next week another god isn't going to gain victory over Zeus or Marduk? In other words, there's no stability, there's no certainty, there's just just ultimate chaos and a lack of, lack of stability, and so there's no certainty. Furthermore, under, under um, human viewpoint, it is the creature then that determines, or some cog in the create, in, in the, uh, in overall nature, some cog in the mechanism that determines the nature of problems and their solutions. So something inside determines reality, whereas biblically God, who is outside the system, determines reality. So if we start with the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible who is the creator, then we can draw three conclusions. First of all, because he is a thinking God, he has a plan. This isn't something that is purely random. He has a plan. Secondly, that plan is expressed by his word. As a person, he communicates, and he has communicated in such a way that it can be understood by man. So the plan is expressed by his word, and truth, then, is what corresponds to his word. So in a biblical viewpoint, we can have truth with a capital T. We can have absolutes. In contrast, if you start with creation inside the circle... You start with the circle, then chaos and chance rule because there's no ultimate certainty. The only thing that brings order and stability out of chaos is the creature, and it's only a temporary order. It's only a semblance of order that is brought to it from the creature. The creature then, point number two, the creature then is the one who determines the nature of reality. And that means, point three, that man becomes the one who determines truth, values, problems, and solutions. So when you start with creation under human viewpoint, it is somebody inside the system that determines uh, ultimate reality and determines truth, and truth becomes something that is relative with a small t. That's why you can end up in, in a, a postmodernism by saying that, that all cultures are equivalent. And you can't say that one is superior to another because they're all inside that circle. And so what is there to, to be able to make value judgments that one is better than another, you have to have some sort of external absolute under which they all can, can, uh, can be, be critiqued. Now, all of that is under point six, just some summary of a few points of how the Bible presents God as the creator. Point number seven, when man determines the nature of God, when man determines the nature of God, when man determines the characteristics, attributes, and qualities of God, that is idolatry. When man sits inside the system and says, well, God must be this way, that way, or another way, creates in his own mind a concept of what God is and what God must be like, 
That is idolatry. Idolatry does not start with external images of wood and stone. Idolatry begins in the soul when the creator God of the Bible is rejected and man on his own begins to uh, supplement that with his own ideas. This is what Paul states in Romans chapter 1. Uh, in verse 21, after he explains the power of God that is seen in his creation, he states, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became empty in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words, what pre- before he generates gods in the forms of animals, he first rejects the creator God of the Bible and then generates from his own imagination his own concept of what God must be like. So when man determines the nature of God, that is idolatry, Idolatry, therefore, is man creating in his own mind concepts of, the, uh, of ultimate reality, the nature of ultimate reality. Point number eight, draw a conclusion. Therefore, in autonomy, as man is a self or law unto himself, in autonomy, man seeks to be the final determiner or definer of reality. These constructs of reality, whether they take the form of religious expression or philosophical speculations, are all forms of idolatry. And what happens in idolatry is that the creature takes something inside this circle, whether it's stars, like in astrology, or whether it is uh, the, the storm gods, like you have in various ancient religions, or whether it is human ideals, or whether it is some sort of a uh, of a human value such as uh, such as justice, or whether it is something more uh, uh, more common such as just sex and your fertility religions, they take something inside the system, money, material things, and they elevate it to the position of God. That's what idolatry is: taking some element inside the circle, some detail of life created by God and deifying it. Exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Romans 1.23 Now, an example of this kind of deification is expressed in what has come to be known as mind science cults. Let me put that up here. Mind science cults. And these mind science cults are, are cults that glorify human thinking, that human thinking can shape and determine reality. Now, these are expressed in terms of non-religious ideas as well as in religious ideas. You have mind science thinking and religious ideas such as uh, Christian science. You have it and transcendentalism as well. Uh, non-religious elements, or I'm using that term uh, in a broad, and it's more common use. I think they're all religious at some level, but in more uh, considered more non-religious 
ideas you have, stuff like Earhart Sensitivity Training, ESP, uh, later called Forum, Silva Mind Control. Uh, those are uh, the various expressions of the, these mind science cults that your thinking determines reality. Sometimes this is called positive thinking, the power of positive thinking. You see this with Norman Vincent Peale. He made that phrase very popular, the power of positive thinking. And his disciple, Robert Schuller came along and called it the power of possibility thinking. And that is that ultimately your attitude, your thinking determines reality. So the idea behind all of these mind science cults is that you can create and manipulate your own reality. The creature can, can create and manipulate his own reality. This is common to almost every Eastern religion, such as Hinduism, Buddhism, Shintoism. It's common to all Eastern, Eastern mysticism. It is common to shamanism. The word shaman usually, most of you probably think of a witch doctor, but this is the more uh, correct sociological term. The, the shaman who is the one who manipulates the powers, the metaphysical powers in the local village. Uh, shamanism and witchcraft. One of the primary techniques that is used in shamanism, in positive thinking cults, and even in the positive confession movement that has come along to to uh, really degrade a lot of Pentecostal churches, the uh, th- this idea of positive confession, one of the primary techniques that is used in these systems is called creative visualization. Creative visualization, sometimes it's called centering, sometimes it comes under the guise of relaxation therapy and self-hypnosis techniques. But the most common term is the one called creative visualization. There's usually in all of these systems some sort of emphasis on healing. Uh, various techniques that you can master that will help you uh, trigger, and they'll always bring in God's name. They'll trigger God's healing power or the healing power of the universe that you need to learn how to think certain ways, say certain things, and you will. Uh, uh, or, or, and they talk about faith a lot, but faith is not. You know, think about how they use that word faith. Faith isn't viewed as trusting and relying upon the truth of a revelatory statement of God. That's what faith is in Christianity. Faith isn't a power. Faith is simply believing that what God says is true and relying upon it. So faith for Christianity is trusting a specific revelatory statement of God, but in these mind science cults and metaphysical religions, faith is viewed as an inherent power that if you've got it right, it's going to release the healing power of the universe. And that will be defined as some le- in some ways as spirituality. A warning here is that these techniques of um, creative visualization, many of these techniques in relaxation therapy, 
etc., are also the same te- techniques that are used in these pagan religions and shamanistic religions to generate various mystical experiences, shamanic visions like you'll have with the Apaches going out and fasting for a number of days until they get a vision from the God and to uh, introduce an altered state of consciousness. Now, an altered state of consciousness does not mean that you become unconscious or trance-like. It, but it does orient you to this metaphysical realm where the mind becomes open to the so-called powers of the universe. What this really does is set you up for demon, demon possession or demon influence if you're a believer. Now, the reason I've gone into all of this is to give a little illustration by, by, um, by application to our prep school teachers of how you use uh, contemporary events to uh, teach some principles of application of doctrine uh, to the kids in the prep school. One of the things we're trying to do this year in prep school is to get parents, and I want you as parents to be attentive to this, that your kids are being asked to participate in all kinds of assignments in school that are just loaded with human viewpoint, thinking, and in some cases raw paganism, and in some cases it's just slightly sanitized versions of witchcraft and shamanism. And you need to be attentive to this, and if you find anything like this, anything from, uh, you know, ecological uh, stuff that is being taught to your kids, ways your kids are trying, the, the school systems are trying to brainwash your kids. Get copies of these exercises, bring them in so we can put them on file in the prep school so that the prep school teachers can help teach kids uh, the biblical viewpoint on these things. It's important for us to know the ways in which our kids are being brainwashed by the by the world system around us so that we can counter that at a point-by-point level with what the Bible teaches. One, one clear example today is you, you've gotten, uh, fortunately there are a lot of teachers both here and in other parts of the country that have enough good sense to reject it, but the NEA, the National Education Association, have been putting out this curriculum to teach that uh, it really wasn't Muslims who, uh, who, who were responsible for the attack on September 11th. You can't blame Islamicists of the Middle East. It was just, you know, that's the fault of, uh, of the U.S. because we just don't, don't uh, spend our money correctly and whatever. And they, they've developed several curriculums to, to teach in the school to, to totally shift responsibility for the uh, 9-11 attacks. And so we have to be teaching our kids in the prep school just exactly what the truth is about Islam because they're getting a lot of crap in the schools about what Islam is that it that it it's really another world religion it's all good it's etc so we have to teach some things about just basic application and teaching critical thinking skills so I'm modeling that this morning one of uh, one of the uh, parents in the church brought me this exercise that was given to their child who's in the fifth grade over in Montville and it's from a stress management unit that is being taught to a fifth graders. I didn't even know what stress was when I was in the fifth grade. Stress was too much homework, so I couldn't watch cartoons in the afternoon. Anyway, here's the exercise. Play relax, and, and instru- the instructor is to play relaxing music at a low volume while you read these instructions. Now, you all stay awake, okay? Sit or lie in a comfortable position. 
gently close your eyes and slowly breathe in and out. Take a deep breath and let it all out. Take another deep breath and let it go. Continue to breathe deeply. Imagine a warm summer day. You are outside lying on your back in lush green grass. You're looking at the sky, which is a beautiful blue. You see soft, white, fluffy clouds that look like large tufts of cotton. Point to one of the biggest clouds, and as you slowly pull your hand back, watch the cloud begin to drift toward you. I want you to watch the tenses of these verbs. You're not causing, you're not thinking that cloud to move. It's, it's beginning to operate on its own, so you're creating your own reality. See it float down close to the ground. Climb onto the cloud. Like we're violating the laws of physics now. Feel how soft and comfortable it is. As you breathe, feel the softness of the cloud. Twice we've used the word feel. Count them. See, this is how you teach creative, I mean, critical thinking skills. Think about the words that are used. Think about the concepts as you Feel how soft and comfortable it is. As you breathe, feel the softness of the cloud and watch the cloud become pink. You know, don't imagine that it's now become pink, but it just happens on its own. Take a deep breath and fill your lungs with the lovely pink of the cloud. How do you breathe in a color? See, it's teaching kids to be irrational, the very core of their thinking. Notice how you are feeling. I know some of you are feeling nauseous, but breathe in and out slowly. Now think of your favorite color. Notice that your cloud has become that color. See, your thinking determines reality. That's what they're teaching. Take a deep breath and breathe in your favorite color. Notice how you're feeling now. Breathe in and out slowly. Change the color again and notice how that color feels. Now as you breathe out, watch all the colors flow out like a rainbow. Enjoy lying in your rainbow cloud. Say to yourself, I am relaxed. I feel good. I am healthy. See, there's that health idea. The colors are pretty and relaxing. Take another deep breath and blow the beautiful rainbow cloud away. Watch your special cloud drift up and away. When you are ready, open your eyes and look around gently stretched, and noticed how relaxed and good you feel. Now, see, this isn't just a relaxation exercise. I mean, the metaphysical implications of this exercise are religious as anything you'll hear in any church throughout this, this land. And yet, it's not supposed to teach religion in the public schools. But see, it's, ha- it's that most people are so ignorant, they don't understand what, what religion is, and they, most parents don't even know what's going on in the public school, so we have to be, um, be made aware of what's going on so that you can counter that uh, at home. A couple of points I want to make in terms of a critique of this. First of all, this is in a stress management unit, so they're teaching a human viewpoint system to the kids to manage stress that is 180 degrees opposite from what the Bible teaches about how to handle uh, stress in life through the stress busters as we have studied. Furthermore, 
the human viewpoint system here reinforces the idea that the creature, that the individual can control, create, and manipulate their own reality. You can make that cloud any color you want it to be. You can make it go up. You can make it go down. You're in charge of your circumstances. Now, the Bible says that you're not in charge of your circumstances, but you're in charge of how you think in response to your circumstances. Furthermore, third, it blurs the distinction between imagination and reality. This is a classic creative visualization technique. Now, I brought out of my library here, I have weird books in my library, a book by Shakti Gawain called Creative Visualization. I picked this up a number of years ago. I was out in California at the uh, at a bookstore called the Bodhi Tree. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Bodhi Tree is the tr- is an actual kind of tree, like an oak tree or maple tree, but it grows in India, and that's the tree the Buddha sat under and meditated. So this is the Bodhi Tree. It's one of the country's largest, or at the time it was one of the largest New Age bookstores, and it was Shirley MacLaine's favorite little hangout. So uh, I picked this up. It was on sale, and... Um, In her first chapter, or second chapter, called What is Creative Visualization, she defines it like this. Creative visualization is the technique of using your imagination to create what you want in your life. It's a technique to create what you truly want, love, fulfillment, enjoyment, satisfying relationships, rewarding work, self-expression, health, beauty, prosperity, inner peace, and harmony. Whatever your heart desires. See, the question comes to my mind. Beauty is not determined by genetics, and it's not determined by a plastic surgeon. It's just your mental attitude. Okay. Whatever your heart desires. The use of creative visualization gives a key to tap into the natural goodness and bounty of life. She goes on to say, Imagination is the ability to create an idea or mental picture in your mind. Now, that's fine. We don't have any problem with that. In creative visualization, you use your imagination to create a clear image of something you wish to manifest. Then you continue to focus on the idea or picture regularly, giving it positive energy until it becomes objective reality. See, it's not just imagination. It is using imagination so that your imagination can create objective reality out of nothing. See, this is confusion of the creator-creature distinction. It's pure paganism. In other words, until you actually achieve what you have visualized. Then a little further on in the book, she states, um, this is just a typical example. She has many examples of visualization, very similar to what I just read. And here she says, now imagine that you are in some idyllic country. This is just to show you the parallelism, why I say that that exercise is, is, uh, is creative visualization. And this one exercise, she says, Now imagine that you are in some idyllic country setting, perhaps relaxing on soft green grass beside a cool river or wandering through a beautiful lush forest. It can be a place that you have been or an ideal place where you would like to go. Think of the details and create it in any way that you would like it to be. So it's very, very similar to the same thing we just saw. And this book is just filled with these kinds of exercises. And in a footnote, she recommends silver mind control, which is a bad as... New Age, pagan, Gnostic, neo-Gnostic concept as you can come up with. Now, one of her, interesting enough in terms of what we saw with our pink cloud, on page 73 she has a meditation exercise called the pink bubble technique. And in that she writes, I won't read the whole thing, but she says, Now in your mind's eye, surround your fantasy with a pink bubble. 
Put your goal inside the bubble. Pink is the color associated with the heart. For her, heart means emotion. And if this color vibration surrounds whatever you visualize, it will bring to you only that which is in perfect affinity with your being. Okay, so when you read this exercise in, in, in the Montville School, this, is particular, this, this thing is loaded with the creative visualization techniques outlined by in that book and several others, I thought that was, I'm, I wasn't going to bring in three or four of the books I had on creative visualization and bore you too much. I want you to understand, though, the importance of critical thinking skills and stuff like this. So what we have here is this was the third observation, that it blurs the distinction between imagination and reality, and in creative visualization, your imagination can create objective reality. The fourth criticism is that this uses the creature, uh, the creature's own self-generated reality to control stress. In other words, stress is being controlled by the imagination that's not oriented to reality. Uh, and the result of this is it teaches children to handle problems in life through an unrealistic and irrational solution that is completely divorced from reality. Point number five, it puts an inordinate stress on feelings. Eight times the word feel is used in this exercise. Teaching you how you handle problems, focus on good feelings. So if you've got problems, just, get, just handle it with anything that will make you feel good. Furthermore, it teaches, point number six, it teaches a mind over body uh, concept that is common to Eastern mysticism and various mind uh, mind control, mind science cults. Point number seven, this is the same kind of thinking that characterizes the positive confession movement in Christianity. And then point number eight, it opens the door to demonism. I have another book here called The Way of the Shaman by Michael Horner. And uh, on page 54... Horner gives a little indication of this. He says, uh, to perform his work, the shaman depends on special personal power, which is usually supplied by his guardian and helping spirits. Each shaman generally has at least one guardian spirit in his service, whether or not he also possesses helping spirits. And he gets this through his spirit quest, which is basically another form of creative visualization. And there he picks up uh, an assistant totem, or what he says in European lit- literature is called a familiar. And that, uh, for those of you who've ever read Napoleon Hill, in his, uh, he's got a very popular book that sales uh, people are expected to read. Uh, that is the same thing that Napoleon Hill advocates in his book. So most people who are in sales, if they have to read Napoleon Hill, they're just being indoctrinated with uh, this kind of mentality. Uh, later on on page 64, Michael Harner states that it's in this, this state of creative visualization that the shaman sees shamanically. This may be called visualizing, imaging, or as expressed by the Australian Aborigines, using the strong eye. It is, he says, it's done in an altered state of consciousness. So that's just to show you that these little exercises are not 
things that are neutral. Uh, I'm not going to say that if your child does it that they're going to become demon-possessed, but it certainly opens the door to that kind of thinking and lays the groundwork for it uh, later on. All of this, of course, is in contrast to the truth, which is what John emphasizes in, uh, when he comes down to verse 20. And First John 5.20 says that we know that the Son of God has come. He is fully God. That term, Son of God, we studied again and again, emphasizes that Jesus is full deity. As part of full deity, He is the Creator. This is what is reinforced many times in the New Testament, Colossians 1.16, that all things were created by Him and for Him. He is, although it's God the Father is the architect, it is God the Son who carries out the work of creation. So when you deny the full deity of Christ, you are attacking the creator-creature distinction. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. We have objective truth. It's not truth that's generated from our own speculations. And it's not truth generated from our own philosophical understanding, but there is objective revelation given by God to man that for the purpose that we may know him who is true, that we as believers can advance in our knowledge of God and we know him who is true. There is absolute truth. It's not a relative concept. And we are in him who is true. That is, we have a relationship with the one who is absolute truth. In his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So he juxtaposes then the true God with idols in 521. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. You guard yourselves from idols by understanding cosmic thinking and by not being influenced by the cosmic thinking around us, which is extremely subtle and constantly trying to manipulate us into defining God according to various uh, abstract ideas and not as he is defined and revealed in the scriptures. Well, with that, we wrap up our study of 1 John, and next time we'll come back and start the next two little postcards, 2 John, and then we'll go into 3 John. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to get a little example of how cosmic thinking is influencing our children, influencing is being uh, expressed in the public school system, and to give us an opportunity to uh, develop some critical thinking skills in terms of applying Bible doctrine to what uh, we see and hear in the culture around us. Uh, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their uh, eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. It is clear from the Scriptures that you are the God who created all things. As such, you define what is right and what is wrong. You define the nature of all reality. You have told us that because of Adam's sin, we're all fallen, that we cannot have a relationship with you unless... A solution is provided, and you provided that perfect redemptive solution at the cross where Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Father, we want to make sure that it is clear to each one here that is not saved that this is their opportunity to make that decision. You have paid the penalty for our sins through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So the issue is no longer sin. The issue is belief or rejection of Jesus Christ as Savior. 
So right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny simply by deciding what you believe, what you are trusting in for your eternal destiny. Father, now we pray for the rest of us as we have studied these things this morning. You would help us to grasp them, see their implications and application in our own thinking and in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.